I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the IISS, and this is Sound Strategic, our house podcast to showcase the talent of our extraordinary analytic team. And today I have the great pleasure to have with me Dr. Ben Rode, who is the Fellow for Transatlantic Affairs, who has held every posh credentialing job imaginable. Uh, let's see, he's been a postdoc at the Belfer Center, uh, working with the Applied History Group, was a research assistant or, or an assistant for Graham Allison, did a terrific PhD on the living and the dying, the rise of the United States and Anglo-French perceptions of power, 1898-1899. He did that at New College, Oxford, so see ref earlier all of the poshest credentialing. And you know what's even better? He's actually smart in the deal. It's not just credentialing, it's actual talent. Ben Rhodes, thank you so much for sharing your time and your talent with Sound Strategic. Thank you for having me, Corey. It's great to be here. You missed out one thing on my CV, which is that my first proper job was working at the Institute, which was a very <laughs> formative experience for me. Okay, insane that I should miss that one of all things, but thank you for bringing it to my attention. Yes, I had forgotten you got your start at this exalted institution. So let's start by talking about the work that you do that's in the news these days, Ben. Sure. Well, my, my main focus is transatlantic affairs, and uh, there are frankly a lot of things in the news in that kind of space at the moment, none of which are particularly encouraging. There are three, uh, especially at the moment, which I'm kind of um, somewhat concerned about. The first is the current discourse of the whole Brexit uh, farrago in Britain at the moment, um, which has been dragging on for some years. But at the moment, there's a particularly alarming discourse um, in the discussions here focusing on the idea that people who are opposing the current government policy are somehow, uh, you know, uh, treacherous or um, collaborating with the European Union. This implication that somehow there's some kind of treasonous uh, behavior going on, that they're surrendering. Surrendering is the current kind of um, uh, term that's used. And why this is alarming is not just because of the idea about political politicization, but to me it really underlines the fact that, you know, at some point Britain is most likely going to leave the European Union. And yet, there will still be a close relationship between Britain and the European Union just by fact of geography and economic uh, ties. You know, Britain is not going to sail off into the Atlantic and, and disappear. <laughs> and despite having potentially very um, hostile or, or, or troubled relations with the EU, we will need to maintain that connection. But to me, it also highlights another kind of um, awkward reality, which is that if and when Britain leaves the EU, and there is a kind of there's been a very hostile divorce. The European Union will still rely to a great extent on British military power to secure it if independently from the United States. And I'm not sure that many people in Europe are quite open yet to that reality, that kind of that kind of paradox. The second thing that's that's in the news that's very alarming is of course what everyone is talking about, which is the the um the the situation about um President Trump and Ukraine. And you know, what's alarming about it is obviously that it demonstrates the president's willingness to threaten the security of a European state that is defending itself against Russian encroachments in order potentially to find incriminating evidence about his future electoral opponent. Um, obviously, we can go into the why exactly that's so alarming in a bit. The third, the third thing that's in the news, not quite so um, recently, but I think is still very important, is uh, President Macron of France's outreach to Russia recently. Um, 
is an initiative to force some kind of rapprochement, at least some kind of dialogue, and we can debate the wisdom of that. But one thing that it obviously indicates is this awareness in Paris that European security needs to be um, thought of without the United States as a key actor. That this is this is this is reacting to President Trump's uh, policy um, over the past few years, um, and uh, to me, anyway, that has troubling implications. Uh, so first of all, you're cheating to identify three <laughs> issues uh, that you work on that are in the news. Uh, let's take them one at a time. First, the the Brexit issue. It's uh, you rightly raised that Europe will still rely on British military power, mm. and Britain will still rely on Europe, mm. and that the language of treason uh, is is gonna make that much harder on both sides of the equation. There's a wonderful passage in Joseph Ellis's book about the American founding fathers titled Founding Brothers, in which he talks about the struggle that the founding fathers had to come up with a language short of treason to describe political differences. Mm. Um, and I keep thinking about that now, that both President Trump is accusing the whistleblower in the Ukraine um, issue of treason, and he is saying that uh, the House um, investigation of him is unconstitutional. Mm. I mean, it's almost like we've been in the United States transported back to the election of 1800, where mm. everybody's groping to find a language. It seems in both Britain and the United States that there is this extremity of political expression. Why do you think that is? That's a fascinating question, and it actually, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad you kind of tied this back to the 18th century, because what's striking about British and American culture, political culture, is yes, of course, there have always been, you know, extreme language um, from, you know, throughout history. But what's quite striking is that in, you know, the 18th century, we did this political culture develops of Tolerance is maybe too strong a word, but the idea that you can have a loyal opposition, the idea that politics can be, you know, reasonable disagreements and that you can disagree very strongly about politics without really wanting to take the axe to each other, literally. And there seems now, we seem to be kind of gleefully throwing away that tradition, which is really very alarming because if you think about it, that tradition that was born in, in Britain and, you know, is in the United States as well is an historical anomaly. That's not how politics has been done for most of human history. It's been pretty bloody and unpleasant. And I think that, that it's a worrying rea you know, trend now that both in the United States and in Britain, we seem to be walking that back. Yeah. Uh, I share your alarm at President Trump seeming to blackmail a weak state in transition to democracy that struggles with corruption. Mm. Uh, it seems that President Trump was encouraging the elected president of that country to fabricate, fabricate um, uh, information mm. about a potential political opponent. Mm. It's a terrible standard for the leader of the free world to set, mm. and it's also deeply unfair to Ukraine. Mm. What would you do if you were the European Union now? How do they help shore up Ukraine against this assault from the strongest power in the order? 
That's a very good question. And actually, what was what was quite interesting in the... I w it's not exactly a transcript. I don't know what the correct word for it is, but the account of the telephone call between the President of the United States and the President of Ukraine is that President Trump several times basically says, well, you know, you're not being helped properly by those EU people, are they? You, they're not really supporting you like I am. And President Zelensky, you know, to his discredit, kind of goes along with it. He's oh, yeah, yeah, they're not helping me enough. You're wonderful, Donald. You know, you're the greatest. And, you know... Which anyone in his right, position right. yeah he's backed into a corner and he has to you know um be somewhat sycophantic to you know maintain this powerful person's support upon which his country depends i think that what the european union could do is reaffirm their support for a free and independent ukraine continue their financial support which they have been giving for ukraine um it'd be interesting to see i mean the the i forget exactly what 391 million dollars that was originally kind of frozen in military support from the United States. I don't know if this would be possibly too ambitious, but it could be perhaps investigated by people within Europe about whether that could somehow be supplemented from their end. Um, that may be unrealistic, but we can wait to learn the time. I don't think the dollar amount is unrealistic, but I don't think European countries have been willing to provide the kind of weapons to mm. Ukraine that the United States has been willing to do. It's that typical division of labor right. uh, where one side of the Atlantic is more forward-leaning than the other, mm. and we drag each other along, which is the secret of the alliance's success, mm. which takes us to Charles de Gaulle, <laughs> uh, because uh, President Macron seems to be living Charles de Gaulle's mm. dream, first of, if Britain leaves the EU, de Gaulle... Uh, <laughs> You know, he always wanted this directorate of three. He mm. approaches Eisenhower about it all of the time. Um, and Eisenhower refuses because it would marginalize Germany. Mm. Um, moreover, the American order after World War II uh, was built on treating smaller, weaker states the same as mm. bigger, stronger states. Mm. And yet, President Trump clearly doesn't buy into those principles of the liberal order. Britain's leaving the EU, so uh, might also like a directorate of three. Mm. And de Gaulle appears to be both uh, laying down a marker that France will be the, the um, main military force in the European Union once Britain departs, uh, and also have the latitude of a more independent foreign policy it can drag the EU along on. Mm. Does that parallel seem fair to Macron? I think, that, I think that you're very right to be raising de Gaulle. Um, I, I've read that Macron actually keeps a copy of de Gaulle's memoirs on his desk. Is that right? Right. So again, they're kind of highlighting the, the significance of historical consciousness and how one sees oneself in the, in the flow of time. You know, as, as, you, as you're, you're saying, you know, de Gaulle was very suspicious about the British. He had very unpleasant memories about being mistreated and belittled by Churchill and by Roosevelt. Okay, I got to break in there. Okay. I realize that that's what Charles de Gaulle said, yeah. but he had no country and no army, and Britain and the United States let him pretend he had liberated France because we understood it was good for France's future. Sure, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying what the, what the reality was. I'm just saying what his perception of the reality was that. And in the war, I believe he made a remark to one of his aides where he said something, you know, the next war, the World War III, is going to be us and the Bosch, the Germans, against the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that 
these different conceptions of what the European Union is, and for many people in France, it's a vehicle for French power, which is understandable. Most, most countries would see it that way. And I think that Macron sees, you know, Britain has declared war on itself, and it's kind of out of the game for the time being uh, with Brexit. Uh, Angela Merkel's Germany is kind of, dis you know, not distracted, well, somewhat distracted. You know, Merkel is coming to the, towards the end of her time in the in government. And he has this opportunity there to be this leading force, as you say. And it's interesting you raised earlier this idea about, you know, the US vision post-war of small countries also having rights. Because I think that one of the concerns that's being raised about Macron's initiative is that it seems to, I don't want to be unfair because it's, it's, it's unclear exactly what this initiative will be, but what people are worried about is that it somehow reflects a worldview in which great powers sit around and make big initiatives and divide up continents and the small powers basically get with the program or they get annexed. And, you know, I don't want to be unfair to President Macron. We'll see how things pan out. But I think that there is certainly a tendency um, among some people thinking, well, you know, France and Germany and Russia are all big countries and we can arrange things to suit ourselves. Um, you know, again, you know, if you think about de Gaulle, this was someone who came of age around the turn of the 20th century when that was how the world was, was run. So it's not surprising that that's how he would see things. But it is a little bit more surprising, perhaps, that Emmanuel Macron, who's about 40 years old, <laughs> may see it like <laughs> that as well. <laughs> so, 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 how did you get interested in this line of work, Ben? Um, well, on a personal level, you know, I'm I'm a dual national, I'm a UK-US national, so I've always had a kind of slightly transatlantic... Yeah, uh, you chose us! <laughs> Thank you for uh, being also an American. Yes, uh, kind of, you know, so I you know, I've found transatlantic issues always very interesting, just from a personal perspective, as I, as I mentioned, I worked for the Institute at the outset of my career. I was mainly focused on actually nuclear issues at that point, but I lived in the US for some years, and then I eventually kind of went to return to academia, returned to my first love, which was history, and I, I was drawn to transatlantic history um, at the end of the 19th century, and in some ways this has been kind of, this return to my transatlantic focus has been kind of fortuitous timing, because, you know, for s some time transatlantic affairs, you know, 10 years ago people would say, oh, transatlantic affairs, you know, it's all kind of disagreements about small things, it's <laughs> all like, but we all agree about everything, and now it's actually become very strategic and contentious and very, very interesting. Talk a little bit about your dissertation. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, I'd say that's probably, you know, I imagine a lot of people would say this, but I say at this stage it's probably some of the best work I've done that I'm most proud of. Um, then we'll hold it till okay. we get to that question. Okay, well then, <laughs> fair enough. I'll park that. So what's your favorite book in your field? This this may sound a bit like a cliche, but I've, I've chosen um, George Orwell's 1984. Um, this was given to me to read by my elder brother when I was about nine or ten years old. Is that right? Mm. <laughs> and it, he's he's about eight years older than me, and it terrified me, and I, it had a very profound um, kind of formative effect on on my views. Um, and I'm sure that most of the most of the listeners know the the, the outline of 1984. But the you know the, the the, the message I took away as a young and, and um, impressionable child was that, you know, the bad guys can win. Yeah, that is an right. important message. Right. You know, the causes of liberal democracy and objective truth are not destined to triumph. And, you know, there's a horrifying um, line where, you know, if you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. There is no objective truth. The party makes up the truth. There is no... I there mathematics doesn't count. The stars are within our grasp, et cetera, et cetera. Now, how does this relate to transatlantic affairs? Well, you know, although sometimes people consider it maybe naive, 
to discuss um, shared national values as well as shared interests. I don't think it is. I think it's indisputable that a concept of the West stands, or at least stood, on this idea of something more than a shared military fear of the Soviet Union. It's not just a military alliance that there were throughout history that could be broken and discarded as soon as it was no longer expedient, but actually the shared belief in um, democracy, human rights, um, liberalism. And what I found especially frightening about Orwell's um, story was not that it was you know, the, the depiction of a, of, a, of a character who was living in you know, Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, or North Korea, which um, someone, I think it was Christopher Hitchens, once joked was as though someone had taken 1984 as a user's manual for how to, <laughs> how to run a state. But it's, you know, it's, not, it's not someone in one of these far-off places, but it's about a character who's in Britain, which has become part of this superstate with the United States, this totalitarian um, dictatorship. And I found that very striking and, and very, um, very frightening. Excellent point. You know, uh, with the end of the Cold War, that this narrative that we won it rather than the people of East Germany, the Warsaw Pact, and even the Soviet Union winning it mm. for themselves, carving out for themselves better, more accountable governance. Um, I think it induced a sort of flabbiness of strategic thinking in the West where we suddenly think our values don't matter. Mm. And then with the Iraq war, the overreaction to 9-11 and the 2008 financial crisis, you get the collapse of belief that our values ought to matter, mm. right? That they bring us a better world. And it's so striking to me how little we seem to believe what others are yearning for that mm. we have. Mm. Um, so 1984 resonates really strongly for me right now too. Okay, what is the conventional wisdom in our field that's wrong, Ben? Well, I'm not going to, I, I wouldn't say this as a cop-out. I'm going to say it's not a wrong, it's not wrong about it, but it might need a bit more nuance. I'm going to talk a bit about national culture, stere national stereotypes and political culture, because people tend either to deprecate this idea of political culture as essentialist and simplistic, which obviously on one level it is, or they tend to kind of take it as determinative and all-explanatory. So, I mean, just a couple of kind of recent examples or contemporary examples of why this might be important. Think about, you know, the recent um, Greek debt crisis a few years ago, which was dominated by Germany and, 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 and Greece. And consider how, you know, the German history of the fear of debt and inflation affected their policy response. And consider how the, the Greek view of the Germans as these kind of austere, Lutheran sadists who were trying to get their own back <laughs> for the Second World War. Think how that affected those relate that that those kind of um, those dynamics. Or think about today about how and why the Germans perceive, you know, the use of military force. We can't we can't understand that at all without thinking about their history over the past eighty years. Or you know, for instance, how the state is perceived differently. The role of the state is seen in France compared to Britain or the United States. And again you know, uh, a Martian coming down here and not knowing this history or this political culture would find this completely incomprehensible. But on the other hand, I think it's very important to realize that, you know, these political cultures and these national stereotypes more, more broadly are malleable. So, you know, I mean, I mean, you, you, you as a fellow kind of 19th century uh, history fan will know this, but, you know, in the 19th century, it was the French who were considered the bellicose, difficult nation who couldn't be contained within their borders, who would always start another war. And it was the Germans who were the kind of dreamy philosophers who kind of couldn't really be adjusted to the, to the normal world. And, you know, in the late 19th century, 
it was the Americans who would criticize the Europeans for being warmongers, that they were the ones who would spend, waste all their money on preparing or fighting wars. And, you know, the Americans were Democrats. They weren't these kind of militarist aristocrats who, who liked spreading war all over the world. So, you know, my point is that these political cultures are very important, but that they can also change within a relatively short period of time and that people should consider that. So I have several reactions to that. First, given you're on the one hand and on the other, it reminds me of President Nixon's great line that he was searching everywhere for a one-handed economist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I heartily agree with you that this so-called realist paradigm, which I prefer to think of as cynical rather than realist, um, should have been refuted for all time when John Mearsheimer wrote the article in 1990 or 91 about how a unified Germany was going to get scary again mm. and was going to dominate mm. Europe militarily and get its own nuclear weapons. I feel like that's a perfect illustration of what you're talking about. Only somebody completely ignorant of German history could think that that's where Germany was headed mm. with unification. Mm. I also share your view that political culture, you know, it's dangerous to talk about, it's squishy, mm. political scientists don't like it because you can't quantify it. Mm. Uh, the, the Turkish novelist Orhan Pamuk has a great line in one of his novels about how if you talk about political culture, sooner or later you start talking nonsense. Mm. But it's also essential to understanding the uniqueness of a country's history, the ability to predict national reactions. But as you say, national identities are constructed, they're chosen in a way. Mm. Um, and there's a really interesting emergent school of political science that looks at these constructed mm. identities. Yeah. Um, okay, best work you've ever done, your favorite of everything you've done. Well, you know, I, I hope it won't be the favorite of all the work I do in my life, but at the moment, since it's still relatively fresh, I'd say my doctoral work, which focused on late 19th century perceptions of power in Britain and France, and I kind of use the prism of the Spanish-American War, the Fashoda Crisis, and the Dreyfus Affair. Now, this, this is particularly pertinent um, to, to you, because originally I'd planned to research the one real case of peaceful hegemonic <laughs> transition, which was between Britain and the United States. And um, that's what I received funding to do my doctoral research on. And luckily for me, about a year or so, I, no, about eight months in, I kind of changed my focus to this, this other one. And I was very lucky because then later on, a mutual acquaintance who I can name perhaps once we start recording, I was having lunch with him and he said to me in this very somber tone, you know, you know, Corey Sharkey is writing a book <laughs> about the US-UK power transition. He kind of said it with this tone of voice, like, you know, the panzers have crossed your frontier <laughs> this morning. So luckily I was like, okay, it's all right. I've already changed the topic, don't worry. But okay, wait, wait, wait. There is room for more than one good book on this <laughs> subject. There should be well, an avalanche of good books. Well, so while I'm grateful for the compliment, I reject the notion that well, you shouldn't have written it on that. Well, maybe Safe Passage was published about a month after I submitted my dissertation, which would have been a like, bitter, bitter blow if I'd been writing on exactly the same topic. But anyway, what, what I ended up writing about was, you know, the Anglo-French perception of each other and of the rising United States, but also how people understood power, how the world worked, and what divided what one statesman at the time called the living nations from the dying nations. And I was interested in what was strange and foreign about their thinking, um, you know, I wasn't, you know, you know, how they measured national power, not just in how we might look at it, say, well, how many you know, battleships did they have, how many blast furnaces did they have producing steel or whatever, 
but how they looked at it in terms that were kind of borrowed and bastardized from all these different type these disciplines like you know physics biology psychology so they'd apply often very weird ideas you know about energy or vitalism or gender or what have mm. you in quite complex and variegated ways to kind of explain international affairs mm. and i found i found working in the archives and reconstructing these people's worldviews a fascinating experience i found it you know like it was like you know often it's just like it's like reading someone's diary which is just incredibly fascinating and it was also interesting because various attitudes kind of emerged or crystallized in this period that we can still see are very operative today in transatlantic affairs. And just one, for instance, is the French, you know, um, conception of, you know, les Anglo-Saxons, which now we think, why are they talking about Anglo-Saxons? Like, we don't talk about, like, the Gauls and the Celts or whatever. <laughs> because, you know, in this period, it, the British and the Americans were talking about the Anglo-Saxons and how wonderful right. this new Anglo-Saxon friendship was. And also, you know, we, we usually think about that in the context of the Spanish-American War, which obviously was the, right. was the main thing. But the French were hearing this and thinking, we're next. <laughs> you know, we're we're also the Latins, and these these guys are going to carve up our empire huh? then as soon as they get a chance. So, it, to me, it was fascinating to see these attitudes, and also the, you know the idea of this this special relationship between Britain and America in in 1898. This is the first one of the first times, as you know, that people in Britain kind of really start laying it on thick about oh, you know, we're friends of the United States, and they're our kin, and you know, we must be with them in this world, right. future world fight. The war between us would be fratricide. Right, exactly. So it's fascinating. I mean, obviously things have changed since then. It was 120 years ago. But it's fascinating to see how some of these attitudes were emerging around that time, and we still have them today. So I don't know anything about the Fashoda crisis. Uh, Teach me and our listeners. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because actually most people in Britain don't know anything about the Fashoda crisis. I didn't, I didn't think I knew about the Fashoda crisis until I went to university and I was reading history. <laughs> but people in France know it very well, as they remember, for instance, Mez el Kabir in 1940 when the British sank lots of French ships and killed thousands of French sailors, which, I, again, I, no one talks about here. Fashoda was, um, it was at the kind of peak of what's called the new imperialism when um, European powers were trying to divide up the few remaining bits of the world that hadn't yet been colonised. And uh, Britain and France had basically dominated Egypt for about 20 or 30 years before then together. You know, this, the Suez Canal is built in 1869. But the British basically kind of squeeze the French out, and the French are very unhappy about this. And the French decide they're going to go and try and find, they're going to go send an expedition to the Nile, which obviously if you control the Nile, you can have a lot of influence on Egypt. Right. And they send this guy, um, I always forget his rank, whether it's captain or commander. Anyway, they send this guy called Marchand, um, in from West Africa, and he spends, I think it's like a year and a half walking across Africa with his team and like all his, you know, native porters. And they bring things like, you know, champagne and brandy with them across, <laughs> for, across <laughs> the continent for a year and a half. And they eventually land, they get, they get to Fashoda, which is now in South Sudan. It's this kind of, you know, town on the Nile. And at just about that point, General Kitchener, who's, you know, very famous with his big moustache with, you know, your country needs you, recruitment post from the First World War, He's just finished winning a battle against the, um, the dervishes, a Sudanese um, uh, movement. He's just wiped them out. And he comes down and he encounters the French here. And the French have planted their flag at Fashoda. And they say, well, this is ours. You know, we're claiming this. Or, and he's, and you know, he basically says, well, you have to leave because this is, this is Egyptian territory and we run Egypt. So in, in effect, you know, get out. And there's this standoff at Fashoda for, I think it's about six weeks. And Britain and France nearly go to war over it. Huh. Um, you know, it, it almost happens. And the French eventually um, have to back down because they know that they're, navally they're much weaker. They're going to lose the war. And 
they say, you know, if we have a war with the British, it's going to be just like the Spanish and the Americans earlier this wow. year, where the Americans totally destroy the Spanish Navy and steal their empire. Um, and they think we can't afford to have this. And at the same time, this is going on that the people... So their perception of Anglo-America mm. coming next for the French Empire feeds into the crisis, it sounds like. Right, absolutely. So there's also this idea, at the same time, there's the Dreyfus affair going on in, in Paris, in France. And people are talking, you know, maybe there's going to be a coup d'etat in France, mm. the military are going to take over. Mm. And, you know, there is this idea that a lot of people start saying, well, maybe the British have inspired the Dreyfus affair <gasps> to undermine us and also to get us to back down at Fashoda. And, you know, oh, is this all one part of the same thing and isn't this sinister? So anyway, it's all, it's all very complicated. I found it very interesting. And the Fashoda crisis I use as a way of looking at how people were talking about France being decadent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people like um, Theodore Roosevelt, who soon would be the president, would say, oh, you know, the French are unfit for self-government. You know, the, lat the day of the Latin races is over, and isn't it wonderful that we, the Anglo-Saxons, are now friends? Mm -hmm. So that's the Fashoda crisis. Fabulous. Thank you for that education. Last question. What's your favorite visualization of data? Well, actually, I was thinking of, of um, having one that we had in the military balance recently. However, Dana has already, Dana Allen, our <laughs> colleague, already <laughs> did that a few weeks ago. So I've had to dig into this other one, which I'm going to hold up for you. I, 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 oh, yay, I love this. Okay, so this one is, um, I'm going to try and describe it as clearly as possible for people who can't see the image. So this is a, a data visualization which was done by Charles Joseph Minard, who was a f uh, former, I think he was inspector, he, he was a government official, he was a civil engineer in France. And he does this great data visualization which basically shows Napoleon's invasion of, of Russia in 1812. And you start off with this big kind of thick block line marching westward across the border, eastward rather, across the border from west to east towards Moscow. And as it goes east, you can see it kind of gradually thinning out as either like people go off on kind of diversions there or people get killed off in battles. And eventually it hits Moscow and then he has to turn around. And so the line changes color and it goes back from, from east to west. And you can see it again, thinning out, thinning out, thinning out. And at the same time, there's a line below here showing the temperature below zero that it was each day when they were there. And it's going steadily down to it's like minus 30 Celsius or worse. And you can just see the line thinning out, thinning out. So when they get to the, you know, the Berezina, when they cross the Berezina, like half of the line disappears. Yeah. So it shows very neatly that he went into Russia with 422,000 men. And he comes back six months later with 10,000 men. So it just shows the, the scale of the catastrophe. But one thing that's really great about this, this map is, and by the way, I realized when I was looking at this again, this was in 1869, which is the year that War and Peace was published, which <laughs> I'm sure wasn't a coincidence. Um, you see that actually, you know, our, 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 our idea of the Russian defeat is that, you know, it's General Winter, that it, it, all the troops freeze to death, etc. But you can see that actually Napoleon's lost most of his troops by the time he hits Moscow. So actually, it was a different reason why most of those guys died. But... It's, it's, this, it's only when you look at this kind of thing that it really jumps out at you. Fabulous. I am thrilled you chose that. It's also one of my favorites. Mm. And we will post it alongside the audio of this so people can listen to it. Mm. <coughs> Dr. Ben Rode, thank you so much for talking about not just one, but three areas where your expertise is topping the news. Brexit, uh, President Trump's attempt to suborn the president of Ukraine for domestic political purposes, Charles de Gaulle's dream being lived out by President Macron for reminding us the lesson of George Orwell's 1984 is that the bad guys can win and we ought not to underestimate the value of what we have in free societies. 
for talking about the importance of political culture, and in particular, Anglo-French perceptions of power, for teaching me about the Fashoda crisis, which I, of which I knew nothing, and lastly, for celebrating and talking us through Mina's fabulous data visualization that shows that it was not simply cold that destroyed Napoleon's army, it was Napoleon's battles that destroyed Napoleon's mm -hmm. army. Ben Rode, thank you so much for sharing your talents with Sound Strategic, and more importantly, for sharing them with the double IWS. Thank you, Corey. It's been great being here.